Whether you're shopping for grads, getting an early gift for dad, or just looking for a little something new or used for your shelf, you'll find it at HPB. And you'll get almost everything for an extra 20% off during the big sale at Half Price Books this Memorial Day weekend. Saturday, May 25th through Monday, May 27th. Save big in-store at your local Half Price Books and at HPB.com. Offer cannot be combined with other coupons. Exclusions apply. To learn more, visit HPB.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to your homepage, which I'm sure is now askbillnye.com. Askbillnye.com. Leave us a question. You can also check me out on the World Wide Web to find out about our upcoming guests. I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and seriously, people, my dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill. So good to be here. It's also good to be with an old friend of mine, uh, somebody who used to write the Brain Games column at Discover Magazine back when I was an editor there, and he does a whole lot of other cool things. Yes, 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 Corey. Our guest today is none other than Eric Hazeltine. He is a neuroscientist who led research and development at Disney Imagineering and was an associate director of national intelligence, like spy stuff. His books include The Spy in Moscow Station and Brain Safari. Eric Hazeltine, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Eric? Yes, you may. Thanks, Bill, and thanks, Corey, for letting me be here. Uh, it's, well, thank uh, you for it's making It's going to be time. big fun. Now, of course, it's none of our business. I hope you don't have to kill us, but neuroscience, Disney Imagineering, national intelligence. These seem like these seem like they might not be immediately connected, but I guess they were. They are for you. What what happened there? Well, as a neuroscientist, the number one thing I've been interested in my whole career is the unconscious. The part of our brain that does things automatically without our conscious awareness or control. And at Disney, that became very important because in the entertainment business, you speak to people's hearts. You go right to the non-intellectual part. And, you know, that has its own set of rules, its own language. And that became very important to design technology that people would make them feel hope, for example. What's an example of a hope-filling uh, Disney presentation? Well, I'll give you an example. Um, we did the first massively multiplayer online game for families and kids called Mickey's Toontown. And as a neuroscientist, we wanted, I wanted to use what I knew about human behavior to make it what we call sticky. And So you remember it? Well, so you would keep paying us. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Sticky meaning you, once, you, once you're in, you stay there and you keep doing it. Yes, exactly. Uh, we found out that through lots of tests and through doing a lot of sociological and kind of neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience research, that what people most want out of the storytelling experience is to identify with a hero who values other over self. And if we can make people feel like heroes, we could engage them longer. So the way we structured the game is that you actually got more points and advanced faster if you helped other people than if you helped yourself. We never said that overtly, but it was woven into the game mechanics and people picked up on it 
and it absolutely worked. It was a smash runaway success. But the point is that that most stories, the hero becomes a hero by giving up their own selfish needs for the greater good. I mean, you look at the tale of two cities where Sidney Carton sacrificed himself for Charles Darnay and Lucy Manette. You look at the Grapes of Wrath, right, the last scene in that movie where a starving woman breastfeeds uh, someone else's baby. Those are the messages that people can relate to. And so that drove, studying that very carefully and John Campbell and the hero's journey and all of that, uh, that led us to a simple conclusion that people would love being heroes by helping others more than helping themselves. And it absolutely worked. But Eric, so here's one of my questions. Everything you're saying makes sense. And there's all this, you know, there's all this literature, all these kind of cultural touchstones you can point to. And yet Disney kind of needed you to do this research, something that seems obvious you know, internally among the marketing people, the designers was not obvious. So in some ways, I'm curious, why is it not obvious? Why do people not naturally think that way? Well, it isn't obvious in new media. This is something about the nature of interactive entertainment, what we call lean in versus lean back. When we're telling a story, I mean, Disney absolutely more than anyone on the planet gets how to tell a story about an outsider's journey in and how to become a hero by honoring others over yourself. They get that. But in the early days, and we're talking the 90s, people didn't get how people could immerse themselves in interactive storytelling where they drove the action. And so that's why uh, we anthropologically went back and studied folklore, storytelling, everything we could going back thousands of years to see what is the irreducible emotional payoff of story. And our conclusion was, Evolutionarily, stories are a way of helping people learn the best way to strike a balance between self and other. Because we're kind of, by nature, selfish. And the very earliest experiences we have are our parents share with your brother, don't poke his eye out. (laughs) You know, in other words, honor others over yourself. And stories are just part of that. And that's why heroes become heroes by giving up self for other. And that was our conclusion, and it worked. And it works. So give me another example, another uh, Disney story. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you another example. Very recently, I've been, when I left the intelligence world in 2007, I went to work for Kevin Mayer, who was the head of strategy at Disney. Now he's the CEO of TikTok. And my job was to work with him to brief Bob Iger, who was the CEO, on what we call businesses in the white spaces of the company. So I proposed a new business and work with Bob Chapek, who's the current CEO. What is the white space, an empty space, a blank Yeah, white page? space is, okay, you have film, television, theme parks, but what about entertainment that grows up between those? I mean, video games, for example, in the back in the day, there was no entertainment category of video games. So something like that was in the white spaces. And so those are, con- technology and science are going to continually create completely new forms of media. We're not done yet, right? We had video games, we have social networks, we have apps, we have augmented reality, we have virtual reality, more is to come. And so my job as a outside contractor was to come up with new ideas. And one of the ideas was to take the internet of things and make it an entertainment platform. My refrigerator is gonna be fun. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's cool. All right, so I, I love <laughs> the sound that? of that. Your but... refrigerator is cool, you know? Uh, yeah, mind. yeah, nice. So, okay, Internet of Things, that's sort of all-encompassing connectivity of everything connected to everything else. So how do you make that fun? How does, how's, you know, having my, my, my coffee cup and my refrigerator and my laptop and my shirt all connected together, how's the, how do you make that fun? Well, what happens in all entertainment and media technology is that today's utilities become tomorrow's entertainment platforms. If you look at radio, it was ship to ship, and then it was, you know, for military and airplanes, and then it became entertainment. The first television was video surveillance, and then it became entertainment. Um, The first motion pictures were used by physicists to do experiments in the laboratory. The first video games started off as computers that were for national security. The internet was developed by the Department of Defense to protect against nuclear attack. So my point of view and what I explained to Bob Iger was that today's utilities will be tomorrow's entertainment platforms. Let's get ahead of it and see what we can do. So the most important thing about 
the Internet of Things is not connecting things, but connecting people. Because people are attached to those things. So we started looking at, again, social games, active games, because our goal was to get kids away from the computer screen, away from their phone screen, and get out there exercising and having fun with their friends. So we called it active play. So we started a project called Playmation, which we basically put very sophisticated computers into wearables. And our first product was the Repulsor Blaster for Iron Man. And then we did Hulk hands and a bunch of other things. And we won all kinds of awards, but ultimately the product was not successful. And I was going to say I'd never heard of those. Yeah, I was going to well, be embarrassed. The reason is we learned something important. When you do something radical and revolutionary, people don't understand it. It's when your genius it. is unrecognized. Well, I've been yeah, there. Boy, can I relate to that? Man. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, um, we, we studied our, I won't call it a failure, but our lack of uh, conspicuous success. And what we realized is when moms went to the toy aisle and they saw a repulsor blaster for 30 bucks and one for 120 bucks, and they both look the same. And ours really made people a real Iron Man, but theirs didn't. Who, she didn't know that. So our lesson from that is that if you want to get people to embrace the unfamiliar, you have to transpose the unfamiliar into the familiar. So our next endeavor was an augmented reality system that we never once called augmented reality. We called it a lightsaber. It was a Jedi Challenges lightsaber that Lenovo made under license to us. And I invented the head-mounted display and the optics for it and everything. But we didn't sell it as augmented reality. We said, this is a real lightsaber. And son of a gun, if you put on those augmented reality goggles and you see the laser light emerging from the shaft of your lightsaber that you're holding, it moves and behaves and you can carve up and destroy things and people and droids just like in the movies. And then you have other people who also have the headsets and they, they, yes. then they interact with you and they see the same thing. Yeah. So it's cool. While you're cutting up people, destroying stuff and so on, you got there after working at the National Security Agency. What's the connection? What, what is the connection between spying and. Well, <laughs> well besides the lightsabers, lightsabers, obviously. Actually, you know, actually, I just went back to Disney where I had been since 92. So you can look at my government uh, service as a five year hiatus in my Disney career. Um, and I mean, that's basically, I did it because of 9 11. And um, what happened was kind of interesting. When 9-11 happened and they recovered a tape in Afghanistan of bin Laden telling a Saudi cleric, you know, I did it, yeah. ABC News brought me in as kind of the CTO of Disney and said, is this faked? And I said, no, it's not, and explained my reasons. And my title, they did a, you know, the crawler, executive vice president, Disney Imagineering. Well, General Hayden, who ran NSA and later CIA, apparently saw that and said, you know, Congress has been on my butt to get an imagination. I'll hire this guy that's a chief imagineer. How, you can't do better than that. Right, so, so he did. So, so, let, me, let me pause for a second. How, how, how did, did you, you know, determine it was? How yeah, did you know yeah, that that yeah. really was bin Laden? Well, it has to do with the photogrammetry. So there's a number oh, of the things. photogrammetry, Corey. Yeah, photogrammetry. I mean, first of all, you look at lighting. You know, back in those days, uh, the, they didn't have the technology for doing photorealistic modeling and recreation of all the different lighting. So there are three or four things you look at. Um, does the angle of the sun look the same? Is the color temperature of the light the same? Is the lens through which it was captured the same? Does it have the same optical distortion? Is the flare and the narcissus in the lens the same? The same as what? Well, let's say you wanted to embed one type of image in another. Some Matting. guy's face on a body, for example. Exactly. What you have to do is you have to take imagery captured from one source and mat it or merge it and combine it with imagery from another source. And if they were taken by different cameras in different places with different focal lengths, with different distortion, with different color aberration and different narcissus and flair, those are things that experts like me can pick up. What was that, what was that word, narcissus? Narcissus. Narcissus is if you have a multiple surface lens, which all of these fancy camera lenses do, you get slight reflection of the sun off of surfaces oh, that reflect. Right. So when you've ever seen an outdoor scene and you see a bunch of lights trailing off in kind of a dot, a series of dots, and you say, what is that? 
you right. know, I mean, it's that, somehow that, that, the reflection of the sun. Now you can add that artificially to sort of give the impression of a, of <laughs> a multi right. system. That's right. And it's called narcissus. It means uh, self-reflection. So um, the point is that experts can take a look at it, and there are 10 things they can look at. And the other thing is the grain, the resolution. Um, you look for uh, digital blending artifacts, quantization. How long did it take you to do that? Five minutes? Six weeks? Well, okay. It took me, it's like in uh, Mark, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. It took me a fraction of a second just looking at it by eye because I'd done it so long, I just knew. But I then ran it through the various things I talked about to be rigorous, and I was absolutely certain it wasn't faked. Well, anyhow, so uh, he, he saw me on TV. They recruited me. I saluted and said yes, and I went in. And was it culture shock, or did you feel like, oh, you know what, these are just different versions of the same problems? Uh, both. You know, it's very different. For one thing, NSA inside is the harshest environment you can imagine. It's computer friendly. It's raised floors everywhere, harsh fluorescent lights, you know, corridors that recede to infinity with no embellishments, adornment, or decorations of any kind, except, you know, loose lips, sink ships, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it's a very, very depressing place. But on the other hand, people are people everywhere. And the things that make you successful as a leader in technology don't change to, no matter where you go. And the rules are simple. You hire the best people, you focus on the most important problems, and you take obstacles and problems out of your people's way. And the last thing and most important that's very underappreciated is you spend all of your time building relationships with your customer. So I spent a lot of time in Iraq with people like Mike Flynn and General McChrystal and CIA station chiefs and so forth. So I spent as much time in Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan almost as I did back in Washington, you know, making friends with customers, doing them favors and bringing the technologists closer to the battlefield. Yeah. So tell me more about that experience. Like what happened when you arrived there? I'll give you an example on IEDs. So I'm rolling down the highway of death from BIAP, uh, Baghdad International Airport, the, you know, we called it Camp Victory, to the green zone. And uh, I said to the lieutenant, who was the convoy commander, I said, Lieutenant, uh, what would happen if we could alert you that there was an IED off ahead before you got within the frag radius, the blast zone, and tell you what quadrant it was in? And he goes, oh, my God, I would love that. And the sergeant next to him started getting really stiff. And the lieutenant was smart enough to ask this sergeant, 20 years older, uh, Sergeant, what is it? He said, sir, you know, permission to speak freely, sir. And the guy goes, okay. So the sergeant turns to me and he says, doctor, that's the dumbest effing idea I ever heard. Because if you do that, we're going to have to stop, wait for explosive ordnance disposal. And while we do that, the bad guys are going to, pick us off with a daisy chain, you know, in other words, put the trigger device 300 yards forward, but the actual bomb where they were going to stop, you're going to get a lot of us killed. And of course, we were spending, I won't tell you how much money on this kind of technology. And I go, oh, ooh, you're right. Well, what should we do? And he gave me an idea. And two months later, we were doing that idea. And are, the are point you allowed is, to say, or is it still classified? I can't tell you what it was. I can tell you that it was effective in that it did greatly reduce the casualties from roadside bombs for a while. But what happens in war is that it's like in evolution, where you have a mimicry and camouflage. In evolution, we call it an arms race. I mean, exactly. That's, called. Yeah. Well, that's right. And, you know, the thing about fighting a war with people like the insurgents in Iraq is that we killed off all the ones who weren't smart. So by the time, most of the time I was there, we were going up against the 18. And so they were very smart. They, I really respected them. They figured out what we were doing and they countered it. And sometimes they anticipated what we were going to do. So the point is that anything you do like that is a temporary advantage. But the point is I was able to be effective because I actually went out there and listened and experienced what was really going on. And so I stopped wasting money on stuff that was going to get people killed and started spending it on stuff that was actually going to save lives. Stick around for more science rules after this.
Whether you're shopping for grads, getting an early gift for dad, or just looking for a little something new or used for your shelf, you'll find it at HPB. And you'll get almost everything for an extra 20% off during the big sale at Half Price Books this Memorial Day weekend. Saturday, May 25th through Monday, May 27th. Save big in-store at your local Half Price Books and at HPB.com. Offer cannot be combined with other coupons. Exclusions apply. To learn more, visit HPB.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Science Rules is back. Now, I seem to recall that you also had a role in, in interrogation, or at least in kind of in, in evaluating people who were coming in to, to figure out whether or not they had valuable intelligence. Let me read you this email from Isaiah M. He says he's a former special ops veteran, he says, regarding interrogation as the efficacy of techniques related to enhanced interrogation are increasingly called into question. What would be the best approach to obtaining time-sensitive information from people who may have it but wish to keep it concealed? I guess he's saying, is torture effective? Were you involved in that? Did you, what did you and if, do? Well, and also, if it's not effective, what does work? Yeah. Well, um, the answer is I spent time at Abu Ghraib prison. I did participate in interrogations, not uh, directly, but observing and helping prepare for them um, because of the work I was doing in countering IEDs. Um, and, uh, most of my work in that space I did when I was the associate director of national intelligence, because I saw and heard and learned things that disturbed me profoundly. I do not believe in torture. I do not believe in enhanced interrogation. I think that not only do they not work, but they are counterproductive and they erode the soul of the people who do it. So when I became the basically CTO of the intelligence community, I continued work John Phillips, kind of my predecessor at CIA, had done with the Intelligence Science Board, and we commissioned a bunch of behavioral scientists at Harvard and other places, blue-chip places, and we didn't call it torture. We called it educing information, and you can get that study. It's called educing information. Just Google it. It's unclassified. E with an educing? Yeah, and, uh, and basically what the report said is there's no evidence that torture works. There's a lot of evidence you get bad information, and there's even more evidence that because wars these days are not about capturing and holding territory, but capturing and holding minds and hearts, um, you lose on the most important battlefield. So how do you get information? I've heard the best way is to develop trust, and then once people start talking about whatever it is, they just start gushing and tell you all sorts of things. Is that true or false? Um, in this report, there are stories of the best interrogators in history. And one of them was a German corporal who had grown up in America and happened to be visiting relatives in Germany when the war broke out. So he got drafted. The he war spoke, being World War II. Yeah. World War II. His technique with uh, prisoners was he never asked them any questions. He just offered them a smoke and walked with them and just chewed the fat and hung out with them. And he had near photographic memory. And, you know, what people do, they said, oh, you know, my airplane doesn't do this, or the stupid air controller didn't do that, and blah, 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 blah. And he was able to piece together the strategy and tactics and equipment, the uh, timing of everything. And later, uh, airmen said, I am sure I gave away devastating information that led to a lot of pilots being killed. This guy was so unbelievably good because he didn't appear to be doing anything. So does that really work? Do we have guys like that? People uh, like yeah, that? we do. We do. Um, the thing is, you know, the bottom line is this. If you got to get information in a hurry to save lives, you're probably not going to do it. You need to get other, you know, interrogation is limited. Um, it's limited in what it can do. And people need to understand that. And even Hollywood friends of mine, former Disney people said, well, yeah, if it's going to save lives, of course we should torture. And I said, why do you say that? Because intuitively you think that if someone's going to hurt you, you're going to tell them the truth to make it stop. Turns out, You'll tell them stuff, but um, you know what? 
when people hurt you, you don't tend to like them and want to help them. So were you effective? Did you change the culture at all? Well, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, I try to be apolitical, but what happened is this report on inducing information, under my authority, I declassified it and published it uh, with the National Defense University. And I got a call from the White House about a femtosecond after it hit the Washington Post that Bush's own people say torture doesn't work. And of course, it was me. And I got called up in the National Security Advisor's office. And, um, and it wasn't a, a warm and friendly conversation. And uh, a few months after that, I left government. And you can draw your own conclusions from that. But you started as a psychologist, right? Yeah, I was a, a physio. Yeah, in my day, we didn't really call it neuroscience. It was physiological psychology. But now, of course, neuroscience is the hot thing. So I call myself a neuroscientist. And I really am. I mean, I, I got my PhD studying the brains of snakes. Wait, what were you studying? What did you start out studying? I studied uh, the way they, quote, see in the dark using their infrared pits. They have basically infrared eyeballs around their lips. Rattlesnakes have them between their mouth and their nostril called pits. That's why they're called pit vipers. So I studied the way their brains organized and uh, synthesized the thermal images with visual images with tactile images. So the thing is with two pits, they can get a binocular infrared yep. image. Is that right? Yes. But what I did my PhD on is pythons may have 20 pits, all, you know, maybe of which eight or nine are all looking at the same thing. So if you have eight eyeballs all looking at something, what do you get out of it that you can't get with two eyeballs? Well, it seems to me a lot more information, a lot more three-dimensional information. Well, I Am guarantee I right? you. Or four-dimensional information. My, my pythons and boas escaped all the time. And they were unbelievably accurate at biting me in the head when I came in. <laughs> I have scars on my head from, you know, python teeth that were left in my scalp. So, okay, I'm no expert, but how often did the same python bite you? Uh, well, usually not very many times because I won't go into the details, but I didn't keep the snakes that long. Um, but they all get out. They, they can squish their body you know, down to a small fraction of an inch, even if they're pretty big, because they, they just have a very flexible bones and vertebrae. And so they can squeeze themselves through things you wouldn't even imagine they could. And they want to get out. They don't, they don't like being in a terrarium. So they got out and they love to wrap themselves around the hot water pipe, uh, uh, which is right over the door. And they, that's where they were hanging out when I come in and they see a big thermal signature, my head, and they go, wow, I only, only got strangled once. Uh, I was doing some behavioral experiments and wanted to make sure that the studies that I were doing on smaller animals were valid in larger ones. So I had a big 12-footer. And the rule of thumb is don't ever handle one by yourself that's more than twice your body length. That's more of a rule of body, more than a thumb. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyhow, this one escaped and got into some bad places. You know, can you imagine a python loose in the psychology department where there are rats and ducks and, you know, oh, and the chairman of the department said, if you don't find this animal, you're fired, your, your career is over. And so I had to look for him. I how I found him and I was putting him back in a bag, which is the way you ship him, a pillowcase. And, you know, most of him went in, but he wrapped his tail around my neck and started squeezing and I started blacking out. He would have killed me. But my uncle who owned these things said, if that ever happens, try to tap them very gently. You don't want to hurt the snake on the snout because they don't like that. So I'm blindly thrashing around in the pillowcase for the snout and I connected and he let me go and I'm here to tell the story because of it. And I'm getting the impression then that you didn't stay in the in the snake psychology world very long. <laughs> well, you know, I did work in Hollywood. Uh-huh, get it? There see, we go. For, you there see what we he go. did there? And then I worked at CIA, so I, I got I yes. know I spent a lot of time with snakes. Okay, so you do work on my face fence. Oh, yes. Oh, thank you for asking about that. So my wife and I, uh, Chris Gilbert, MD, she's a holistic integrative medicine person. Our belief as kind of biomedical people is that the number one cause of disease is emotional problems and behavior. And there's a lot of data to back this up. So when we looked at COVID, she said, Eric, you're an inventor and a geek. You know, can you do something to target behavior? Because we don't have a vaccine. We don't have a cure. All we've got is behavior. And you know what? That ain't working so good. So um, I looked into it and I made some 
conclusions, just like I went back in the storytelling piece and looked at anthropology, I said, why aren't people social distancing? Why aren't people wearing masks? And there isn't one answer. Some is habit, some is politics. So I thought about this and I said, you know, one of the reasons people don't socially distance, there are a lot of people who don't want to get close, but they feel like they're uncool if they say, hey, would you jump back or would you wear a mask? So the psychology of this device, it's a wearable, about an inch and a quarter square you put around your neck, and it flashes and beeps when someone also wearing a device gets within about six feet. And the psychology is, my device is saying this, I'm not. It's not my fault. Right. Yeah. It's not my fault. It's um, the man. But it's only if the other person is also wearing a device? That's right. And so I'm not targeting it to consumers. I'm targeting it to businesses. Because honestly, although I was interested in consumers to begin with, the kind of the jury's in. People don't care. You know, it's not like they want to get sick, but they most people do not care enough to wear a mask and keep socially distant you know, consistently. And so my hope is that companies will, for liability reasons, for health insurance reasons, for being bottom line oriented and are in therefore somewhat more rational than individuals. And so I'm really only targeting uh, companies. And then, so, what, and then what kind of a sound does it make? Is it a warning buzzer? Ah, now this is a fascinating thing. You know, again, my Disney experience is whatever you do, do it well. So instead of just a beep, we found out, I did a lot of user testing. A couple dozen people have tried it, and they got, you know, lots of feedback. And one of the things is this thing's going to get really annoying really fast. and goes, beep. Uh, so what I did is I went to one of Hollywood's top composers, who also does video games, a guy named Ron Fish, who I worked with on interactive games, and the guy's incredible. So I said, look, uh, Ron, here's what I want, an emotional beat. I want this thing to be like a friend who cares about you, but isn't going to annoy you. So if this is the emotional beat of the scene, how would you play that? So he came up with a sound that's kind of fun and it's not too annoying, but it's noticeable. And so the idea is this thing, it gives the thing character. It gives the thing a little bit of heart. And so that again is part of, uh, you would think this thing, which the technology in one sense is incredibly simple, it's basically an optical transceiver. but It's incredibly it, simple, everybody. It's an optical transceiver. Well, I mean, it, it, compared to some of the things I've worked on, it's like technology isn't that complicated. But the more I got into it and realized, well, it's got to have enough field of view off to the side. So I had to invent some optics to kind of fisheye out the yeah, field of reaction. Was, you're, sort of, you're like wearing it around the, like with a lanyard, like a necklace. Is that how you'd yeah, wear yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, If you want but more. But you can't, you, you can't have lapels of your sport coat or your uh, blazer. Yeah, but you, you wear it on a lanyard. On and, and they did a lot of research. Go to uh, www.myfacefence.com and you'll see. And basically, we did a lot of experiments on do you clip it on? Do you, you know, stick it on? We finally concluded that you need a lanyard that's adjustable so you can make it up and down. And you can wear one or two of these things. You wear one if you want forward coverage, and you put another one on the back if you want <laughs> <Yeah>. 360. <laughs> well, talk about the Internet of Things. It would be a whole jersey. Oh, yeah. Net. Yeah. Well, I would have to think that even if this is purely a workplace thing, that it must do psychological conditioning that then those people, when they leave work, After a while, have yeah. that kind of yeah. distancing programmed into them. That's right. You know, this is a call-in show. Eric. Yes, Bill, bring us a call. And I, and I think we have a caller. I just really want to hear your take. Hello, Bill, everybody. Um, I am, this is going to be a question for Eric. Um, I was wondering, uh, I'm an aspiring Imagineer, and I was wondering how one would take their love of science, take their love of Disney, and put those two together and become an Imagineer like you did in the 90s. Thank you. Well, part of it is how you answer the interview question. And I looked at who makes a great Imagineer, and I studied all the A-level performers we had. And here's what they all had in common. Sometime around the age of 12, they got bitten by an obsession. Could be ham radio, could be cars, could be hacking computers, could be you know making little model models of different things, robotics. But when you are good, you start being passionately curious about the age of 12. Number two... Great Imagineers read copiously and voraciously and, you know, in anything they can. You know, you go into their houses and there's stacks of magazines of zillions of different kinds. Um, number three, passion. There are a lot of talent and a lot of smart people out there, 
But the difference between good people and great people is passion. You got to really care and it's got to really drive you. And then the last thing is you got to be practical and you have to actually have accomplished something. You know, you're not going to get into Imagineering unless you actually have something to show of what you've actually done. So even if a guy's in college, he or she would have done something cool in college, something cool in high school. That's right. You're really not going to get anywhere unless you have kind of a portfolio and something you can point to where you've turned your dream into reality, because that's what Imagineering does. Okay, Eric, now I wonder what bit you when you were 12? Yes, I was into ham radio and I was also into blowing things up. Uh, I came up with all kinds of chemical means to uh, do rapid oxidation. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, I just I did blow lots of things up. And um, that is something that I find. uh, And at Disney, I did develop a death ray. And unfortunately, I set the parking lot on fire and the asphalt caught on fire <laughs> and uh, they they stopped my death ray project after that did your death ray involve microwaves or what did it involve uh well i was gonna ultimately use a q-switch neodymium yag laser to create uh, oh, free air plasma yeah, as one does but well since, it's really hot yeah. yeah but but at disney we say fake it till you make it so what i did is i went to stewart film screen who makes rear projection screens i said Make the screen, but don't put the front lenticles on. I just want a big Fresnel lens. So it's basically the world's biggest magnifying glass. <laughs> and so I put it up on a forklift. It's 16 foot across. And at noon, I collected enough sun to with a shutter and a sound effect where you could take a trigger and point it and go poof. And let me tell you, when you concentrate 16 feet of collected Southern California sunlight on anything, yeah, ooh, wow. Science Rules will be right back. Whether you're shopping for grads, getting an early gift for dad, or just looking for a little something new or used for your shelf, you'll find it at HPB. And you'll get almost everything for an extra 20% off during the big sale at Half Price Books this Memorial Day weekend. Saturday, May 25th through Monday, May 27th. Save big in-store at your local Half Price Books and at HPB.com. Offer cannot be combined with other coupons. Exclusions apply. To learn more, visit HPB.com. You're listening to Science Rules. Hi, Science Rules. My name is Emily, and I have a quandary for Eric. I've always had hoarding tendencies. It's as though I'm blind to the piles that are stacking up in the corners and creeping in the main living spaces. I always do anything else than what needs to be done, and I know it needs to be done. I know it's a problem. Oddly, I can always initiate and complete tasks for altruistic reasons. I know I need to do what needs to be done for myself, but I've had no lasting success uh, in over 30 years. Uh, I've been apprised of all stratagems and therapies, such as the Just Do It, the Murray Kondo method. Uh, you know, I, I love her, and that was the most success I've had, but unfortunately, it didn't last. I go, you know, entropy. I go right back to where I began. It's stacks and piles of nonsense everywhere. It's, it's, not, it's beyond bad habits. I've always been like this, and it really bothers me that no one can tell me what's wrong with me, and I constantly think, why am I like this? Um, uh, Can you help me interrogate my own neuroscience? Can I be helped? Uh, Because I want to be a better friend to my future self. And uh, if anybody has any advice on how to affect lasting change, I would appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. So neuroscientist, human behavior, friendly to yourself guy, Eric. Right. What do, you do, can, what do you do when your passion is hoarding and you want to overcome it? Well, now this is where I have to reveal a dark secret about myself. Um, yes, I have a PhD in psychology and I call myself a neuroscientist, but I was a shrink for seven years. I volunteered as a uh, intern psychotherapist at the South Bay Center for Counseling. So I saw patients and I do know something about this. My specialty was domestic violence. But I saw other kinds of patients. There is no one answer to this, but I'll make a couple of observations. And first, to the caller, I empathize with you and I feel for you. This can't be easy. Um, And, you know, there's a point there. 
don't be hard on yourself. It's bad enough that you don't like what you're doing, but don't compound it because actually this is a weird thing about psychology. The fact that you're down on yourself for doing this is one of the reasons you do it. There's a hole somewhere that you're trying to fill and uh, one's too many and a million aren't enough. It's that kind of problem. But you know, from a behavioral point of view, sometimes it really doesn't matter why you are the way you are. The question is, what do you do to get out of it? And the one thing I can offer to you is you can't ever tell anyone, don't do X. Never works. You know, don't overeat. Never works. Don't drink too much. Almost never works. What you have to do is do something that's incompatible. So you have to actively do something, not, not do something, if you understand what I mean. So ask yourself the question, what would be incompatible with hoarding? A proactive, positive activity that requires you not to hoard in you order mean, like to do it. Like if she decided to, to like host a, a book group at her house, it required her to have space for everybody to be there or something like that? Yeah. Yep. Or create a home office or something. Um, you know, what I used to do with patients is challenge them to come up with the answer. You know, Emily, I'm going to share with you something that you may think of as metaphysical, but all my years of dealing with people and the human condition have taught me this, that what you seek actively eludes you and what you pull back from comes to you. You know, it's almost as if you live in a viscous fluid and there's this precious golden little leaf off that you want to reach for. When you reach for it, you create turbulence in a bow wave that pushes it away. When you pull back from it, it goes into the vacuum and comes to you. And why that is true, I don't know. But for example, with insomnia, the number one problem is people worry about going to sleep and that worry stops them from sleeping. So the answer to insomnia is stop worrying about going to sleep, do something else, and then you'll go to sleep. So it's that kind of thing that uh, you have to stop worrying about the fact that you're a hoarder and that will help you get over being a hoarder. There you go. It sounds simple. Wait, it sounds really hard. Is this connected to what successful athletes talk about all the time? I'm not kidding, Eric. I've interviewed a lot of these people over the years in different shows. What do you think about when you're up at the plate getting ready to hit the ball? What do you think about when you're the soccer goalie ready to def or trying your best to deflect an incoming? And what do you think about right before the gun goes off when you sprint to try to break a world record in the 100 meters? Each of these people said, I try to think about nothing which is quite difficult. <laughs> well, it's connected to this phenomenon called the other you, that unconscious you that really drives what you do. And, you know, we all hear ourselves say things that we're not consciously aware of ordering our vocal cords to say. And so, you know, athletes in particular, like swinging a bat, you cannot think about it because if you look at the timing there isn't time for the visual information to get up to the cortex and to go around the cortex to the motor cortex and back down the pyramidal tract to your muscles. Not enough time. So much more primitive loops have to get exercised. And so the thing is you have to get out of your own way and let the body do what the, the other body's going to do. And this, again, I want to go back to my wife, Dr. Chris Gilbert. This is her thing. She has discovered... The body is actually an intelligent thing in its own right, completely separate from your mind. Did you know, for example, that in your gut alone, there's an enteric nervous system that has more neurons than the cerebral cortex of a monkey? I have done a lot of work with monkeys, and let me tell you, they are really smart. So essentially, you've got, at least, I'm just talking about your gut, not your other autonomic nervous system, you've got a monkey inside of you, something that smart, a lot smarter than a dog, and it has its own agenda, and it literally is something that feels and wants. And uh, that's what I call the other... So you're saying that it's like, a, like a, gut, a gut feeling is more than just a metaphor, but it actually is a, a real kind of neural that's process right. thing? I think that our language is incredibly insightful about what we've kind of known at some level that science hasn't yet discovered. So when we say gut feeling... It is literally the case that there is cognition going on in your gut. But the point I'm trying to get to is that I wrote this article for Psychology Today about how you can predict the future with your heart. And they've looked at things like uh, heartbeat, innerbeat variability as an indicator of what's going to come. And there's some fascinating things that kind of spookily kind of <laughs> indicate that your heart can tell the future. It's weird, weird stuff. The way this ties into athletes is it 
uh, it's almost as if the athlete is the observer of this kind of animalistic thing underneath them that is actually doing the real swinging of the bat. They're more an observer of a driver. Uh, in my book, uh, Brain Safari, I talk about as a kid, I grew up in the Mojave Desert. I had horses and guns. And I was on a quarter horse that got bit by a bee. And it took off and was, you know, jumping over bushes. And I was only eight years old and my riding instructor couldn't catch me. And ever since, looking back on that experience, I realized our bodies are like that quarter horse. They're really in charge. And we think we're telling the horse to go left, go right, go faster, go slower. No, the horse is going to do what the horse is going to do and give you the illusion that you're steering it. That is precisely what is going on with what I call the other you, that you've got this stallion, this horse that's really running the show, and you have this illusion that you're in charge because you happen to think that, oh, I thought this, and then it happened. Corey, do you hear that? It's almost like the rumbling of my stomach, but no, no, it's a, it's an exterior rumbling sound of thunder, it's, which means lightning round. It's lightning. It's time for the lightning rounder. You call yourself a futurist. What does that mean? Well, I try to predict the future. There you go. <laughs> uh, you've had a few very different jobs. Which was your favorite? The Intel job, because I was saving lives. That's everybody says that, man. People who go to work for the government, you're part of something bigger, which it ain't gets the back pay. to your original story. Yeah. Uh, what was your worst job? Working for the government. Ah, <laughs> uh, get what he did there. Uh, what about your own work? Do you wish other people understood? You wish people knew what you were doing? The excitement of discovery is something that I think all scientists wish they could share. There yeah. were times when I was exploring the brain of different species where I'd be diving down with my microelectrode and listening to things that no one had ever heard before, discovering things that had never been discovered before. That pure joy of being the first to know something in all of humankind is indescribable. Oh, man. Cool. I know we're in the lightning round, Corey, but I got to tell you, out there, if you're listening, I presume you're going to be somewhat younger than I am. When you go to Mars and walk up to either the Spirit or the Opportunity rover or, or, or Curiosity. Or Curiosity. Or, or Perseverance. You walk up to it, look at the sundial, the Mars dial, the photometric calibration target, and it says, to those who visit here, we wish a safe journey and the joy of discovery. To your point, the joy, the J-O-D, the joy of, okay, back to the lightning round, doggone it. What is the worst idea that ever came across your desk at Disney? The worst idea. Um... Well, it was an alien petting zoo. And, ah. you know, at Imagineering, we said uh, fear minus death equals fun. So let's scare the holy bejesus out of these young little kids right up to the point where their, you know, parents are going to have a heart attack. And uh, they'll see where that takes us. And I'll tell you, that was incredibly fun to work on. But at the end of the day, you know, eh, we took it a little bit too far. What would you say is the biggest threat or maybe the biggest unappreciated threat that's facing us? Overpopulation. It is the kind of the driving engine of a lot of these problems. When you look at geopolitical issues like war, like look at what's going on right now between China and India. People say, well, why are China and India fighting over some patch of mountain? And like, duh, what, why are they doing that? Well, they're not doing it for no reason. And those are the two most populous countries in the world. You think maybe those are connected? Okay, so hmm. how do we solve it? I got to say, I got to say, people have talked about too many people for millennia. I think this is really a manageable thing. If we raise the standard of living of girls and women, the human population will manageably go down. Uh, but to do that, we have to do everything. Well, I agree with at you. At once. Yeah, I so agree. And by the way, I'm not done. saying we need fewer people. I'm saying that we need to understand that when we grow our population, nature is going to fight back with viruses that are very creative and war and climate change and all this other stuff. And, and then water we just shortages. To, yeah. So what's next for you, Eric? What's well, your uh, next thing? My wife and I are working on a new book on innovation called Faster, Better, Cheaper Innovation. And the point of it, when it comes to science and technology and innovation, it's all about relationships and informal relationships. Well, I say all the time, technology doesn't come out of the sky, people. It comes out of humans. Yeah. For but more than anything, it comes out of relationships. And then the other thing I'm working on is an AI project 
Um, I'm working on a weapon detector that you could go through and not have to take out your wallet and your keys and your phone. This would be for, and you so, just for walk the airport right or for a building yeah. or anything? Yeah. It's taking some old technology. That won't no, wait, go into can, the can details. You give, can you give us a hint of how you do a universal weapon detector? I realize you can't tell us exactly, but can you give us a hint? Well, basically, there's some physics involved where you look at the um, way certain molecules respond to certain stimuli. And if it's a phone, it's got, for example, permanent magnets in it. The phones have like seven or eight permanent magnets, and they have molecular signatures. But a gun is a high-carbon steel, or a knife is high-carbon steel. And those things have a different molecular signature. And with an AI and the right kind of sensors, the AI can see the difference. Cool. There you go. So you're going to save, the, you're going to uh, make the world safer through this new technology that replacing dumb we detectors with hinting. smart detectors, basically. It's just cool as heck. Our guest today has been Eric Hazeltine. He is a neuroscientist who led research and development at Disney Imagineering and, of course, was Associate Director of National Intelligence. His most recent books are Brain Safari and The Spy in Moscow Station. Remember, when it comes to finding out what makes people do what they do, science rules! Yeah! And if you like Science Rules, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out. It helps us find out who is listening and what you want to listen to. So thank you very much. Be sure to look at my socials, as the kids call them, for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you remember this. Give us a call at 201 or go to askbillnye.com on the electric internet and submit a question. Now, Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell, the very same. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, Corey... Science rules. Stitcher. Whether you're shopping for grads, getting an early gift for dad, or just looking for a little something new or used for your shelf, you'll find it at HPB. And you'll get almost everything for an extra 20% off during the big sale at Half Price Books this Memorial Day weekend. Saturday, May 25th through Monday, May 27th. Save big in-store at your local Half Price Books and at HPB.com. Offer cannot be combined with other coupons. Exclusions apply. To learn more, visit HPB.com.